0: I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash, but mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up Rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Kooks. And go Utes! On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase, and the question: censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, nine to eleven, for Dave and Gijanovic.
1: Hey, I, I just got—I just learned I have cancer. What's a good food for cancer? And, you know, they're basically getting these sidebars, almost like a doctor, asking them to cure their cancer or their stomach ailment with ginger. And there's just a lot of just natural behaviors around food. And, and there was also a lot of unhealthy behaviors around food. You know, people just kind of toting around a big thing of sugary drink with them as they worked um, to try to keep up their energy, right?
0: Kyra Bobinette, thanks for making time.
1: Absolutely. Great to be here.
0: So uh, for people who aren't familiar with Fresh Try or or your background, your stuff at Stanford, Aetna, can can you give people the kind of the overview of the, the, the Kyra story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I started out as a scientist that went to medical school and then started a nonprofit for gang youth uh, in the prison system, which then drove my interest in public health. I went to Harvard, was recruited to Etna as the medical director of health and wellness innovation, and then I started my company, Engaged In, uh, because I saw the need for including behavioral science, behavioral design, neuroscience-based design into healthcare products. Then I was hired by we were hired by Walmart to. Create a, a completely different disruptive product uh, that they wanted to disrupt themselves and and the market. And here we are creating this product called Fresh Try.
0: Yeah, and for people not familiar with it, can you give us the elevator pitch?
1: Yeah, Fresh Try is basically a habit formation and mindset training software, and it is based on how the brain forms habits. And it's it's very steeped in science, but you don't have to know any science to use it. It's more of just a, an easy, simple way to change how your brain works.
0: And is it primarily app based, or is the app just an element of it?
1: The app is the the sort of uh, the face of it, the the UI user interface of it right now, and it's focused on food habits. But it's really just a platform for all kinds of habits, and so we're having conversations all over the ecosystem for different use cases as well.
0: That's great. And, um, and tell us about, uh, your interactions there with Stanford.
1: So Stanford is my home base these days for teaching. And I'm part of a lab called the AIM lab at the, uh, Stanford school of medicine with Dr. Larry Chu. And we're really about, you know, patient engagement and health and well-being and how to use design thinking with science and technology.
0: That's fun. I, uh, I did get to go take a class at Stanford, uh, an entrepreneur class for a you know one of those executive education programs and the design thinking portion of it was pretty fascinating uh since become kind of a devotee of the ideo folks and and some of that stuff so it's interesting to hear how you've applied it um yeah so can we can we dive into um you know you've got you've got such a great background you've got so many opportunities in life when you're deciding this is this is my cause this is what I'm going to Focus on most. How did you get there? With with you know probably a lot of options.
1: With fresh try, um, you know the, there's kind of a hit list in my mind of the top you know public health levers that I want to push and I want to change, which would make life it would restructure redesign how we live. And food is one of the most powerful levers of health well being. It touches everything. It touches the economy. Uh, social norms, you know, uh, epidemics of all kinds. And so we, starting with food was very important because we have it backwards. Like even now, if you look at the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger making their way into fast food chains, no one ever thought that was gonna happen ever, right? So we're really in this very interesting turning point where we're coming back to our own natural biology and what works for our bodies instead of I'll call it the chemical era of food that drove a lot of disease and so we as humans are trying to figure out how do we save ourselves how do we how do we not run ourselves off a cliff um, and and we don't want to hurt our children and once childhood obesity hit that kind of woke a lot of people up. I, I'm really excited about just just the scale of that lever and and for me at this point in my career I care about scale
0: yeah. You know, it's it's interesting subject matter for me. I think about both myself and and a lot of my friends who kind of worked our guts out in the twenties and early thirties, and and maybe you know got a little more success than the average, or quite a bit more success than the average folks out there. But uh, probably engaged in some pretty unhealthy habits, sleep wise, food wise, <laughs> exercise wise, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. and even family wise. You know, uh, I've got four kids, oh, yeah. and I look back at some of the dad decisions of when I probably didn't need to put in those extra hours a number of times, you know, and, yep. uh, lucky, you know, my kids are still 15 to eight. So I'm not, you know, I've got, I've got some time to make up for it still. Right. Right. But, right. Um, but I also had the, like, <laughs> you know, I ran on, I didn't have to worry about what I ate, uh, weight gain wise until it was about 36. <laughs> my metabolism took care of everything forever. And then all of a sudden it right. hit like a freight train. Right. Um, so knowing that there's, and again, looking at the show, you know, we've got so many high achievers on the show where there have been sacrifices in, in other parts of your life. For folks like us who we, we've known we've been not doing it right nutrition-wise and some other health practices, but knowing hasn't been enough, what, what's your first mm-hmm. piece of advice for folks like us?
1: You know, I feel like people all act the same way, which is that we all have to reach a point where we can no longer get away With what we've gotten away with, you know, to your point of you hit your mid thirties and then all of a sudden you couldn't get away with it, right? So it brings itself up and says, Ahem, you know, I you have to change me now. And that's pretty much what we're all gonna do. So I don't believe that we're going to know before we know. And so what's important is that we have the skills of reducing the suffering because what happens is that once you know that this is different, that your metabolism dropped in this case and you're starting to gain weight in this case then you have to turn into it immediately because you know that every cycle of that lesson is going to get more and more intense and greater and greater pain and suffering for you. And so what I think high achievers do differently than other people is that they pick up on that signal and they go, "Oh, this is where that's heading." And they they immediately lean into it instead of run from it. And the people who end up suffering the most are the people who avoid. They start avoiding and, and the, their flight response gets the better of them and then this thing that they didn't address chases them down decades later in the form of something horrible.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the little bit of your material that I know and I, I think one of the really attractive things that you've said that appealed to me is this idea of, you know, instead of thinking about it as this one finish line, can we think about it as continual iterations? and. I kind of got the sense from you that you're advocating more of a, more of a lifestyle, more of a routine than um, the accomplishment of this number on the scale or this, this, you know, this much on the bench press kind of a thing that it, can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah. So I feel that, you know, right now the brain is telling us that goals are great in only two cases. One is if you are already an expert in that said field, like Steph Curry, for example, if you say, Steph, you know, do this drill faster, he's so hyper good at that, that he'll, you know, make that accomplishment. But for people who are beginners in a particular domain or particular topic, setting goals is very dangerous because there's an area of our brain called the habenula, And what the habenula does is two things. One is it registers failure. If you think you failed, it will light up literally in an fMRI machine. And then the second thing it does is it controls your motivation. So if you think you failed, it will kill your motivation to try again. And the most insidious part of that is that you don't even know what happened to you. So it sounds like, oh, I used to do all this great stuff for myself. I used to have all these habits. I used to be on top of my time management, whatever it is. And then you ask them, well, what, what happened? How'd you get here? And they will literally blankly stare at you and say, I have no idea. And so subconsciously somebody has a venula hit and then they subconsciously lose all motivation to try that thing again. And you've got somebody who's kind of stuck. So iteration and continuing to iterate on what you're doing, which means tweaking, adjusting, uh, experimenting, all that kind of stuff. What I've found is that iterators never fail. They never hit, they never hit the bottom. And so every single person who, like I said, leans into that initial signal of, oh, something's wrong, oh, I'm gaining weight, oh, this isn't working, will start to iterate their way through that problem. And that's what makes them successful.
0: You know, um, I'm glad you brought a little bit of the science part to it. Um, I feel like, you know, the business literature these days, even just regular social media, there's so many you shoulds out there. And sometimes it's hard to sort through The credible sources right um Mm -hmm. and for some reason at least for my personality type hearing you know the physical ramifications of you know this this part of the limbic system did this or you know um understanding what's physically going on for some reason lets me attach much more solidly and uh Mm
1: -hmm.
0: i don't know i think about we were talking about myelin for just a minute before the show and i think like My willingness to procrastinate on mastery goals went down when I know I can't I can't earn today's myelin. I can't just cram on the weekend like I either either Mm -hmm. grew my myelin today or I didn't, you know, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you talk more about this response, this, um, you know, the emotional, the chemical, any, any aspects of when the brain registers that failure, what's going on there inside of us?
1: Yeah, so it's just literally a um a like a like a knee jerk. So with the habenula, it when it lights up, it basically downregulates, which means that it kills or suppresses your feelings of motivation. So all of the sort of emotional centers, all of the drive centers in your brain, all that kind of stuff get damped down when you have the perception of failure. And then people who don't perceive a failure basically just don't hit, they don't light up their habanula. So it's kind of this alarm, a tripwire, if you will, that you want to at all costs not set off. And so a lot of psychological uh, tools such as, you know, a big one is reframing. Another one is restory. So reframe is, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't do a bad job, I I didn't fail, this other thing came in that, you know, would have taken anybody out, you know, or, or that kind of thing to give yourself a second chance, or to, or to reframe why something happened the way it did. Restory is basically telling a different story from the past. So a lot of people have these ruminations in their mind. And we, we can talk about that and how that story in the brain too. rumination is well, somebody at one point told me that I wasn't a good singer or I wasn't a good planner, whatever that story is. And and to restory is to say, well, I'm not a good singer, but I'm practicing to be one. And that's something called growth mindset, which Carol Dweck has done a really great job at Stanford of uh, being the person who understands how the brain does that. And that restory of yet or I'll figure it out or those kinds of things really help to unlo- unloose somebody from that, that failure stuckness. And my feeling is that every problem that we see happening to people at scale, such as obesity, in my case, uh, what I work on, is a epidemic of quitting, quit trying. And mm. so if we could just figure out how to re- how to reframe and re and get people moving again in some sort of effort and keeping in effort at all times they would be brilliant they would be unstoppable they would be powerful and they would be fully themselves so that's my vision for people
0: <laughs> that makes me think of so many things you know uh there's Tim Ferriss who's got a big podcast talks about um how IBM when they were the big you know the big behemoth in the 50s or 60s um you know the most dominant biggest company in the world most dominant company that uh, mm-hmm. somebody asked him, what do you think their sales targets were? What do you think their sales quotas were compared to their competitors? He said, oh, I bet they're way higher and motivating people to stretch. And he ended up finding out they were the opposite, that IBM's quotas were some of the lowest in the industry and that h- their reps got such a feeling of success that spurred them on to further success um, mm-hmm. in a very counterintuitive way, you know? Um, makes me think about a you know another Stanford professor there, BJ Fogg, who talks about those Tiny habits, you know, where yeah. don't, you don't have to go to the gym for an hour a day every day. How about starting with two push-ups, you know? Kind of a thing. And right. Um, imagine a different part of the brain is line is lighting up even if the goal is small, huh?
1: That's right. And BJ is my mentor, so I oh, really? really appreciate, you know, what when, when people when people come up with things that actually work in nature, it's because they're following nature. They're following how the brain naturally goes. And they could be business people who don't know anything about behavior science. But like in the IBM case, they intuitively understood or maybe they observed uh, pattern recognition wise what people did in response to big versus small goals. Right. And achievable versus big, hairy, audacious goals that kind of came and went in the last few years. Because um, we understand that if we violate how the brain works, then we the, the animal of the human will not move. Right. So it's just like training dogs. Some people are really, really good at it and some people have terrible outcomes and it's kind of the same process
0: yeah how much easier is life when we follow the principles that our whole system is built on right <laughs> from the brain physical all of that. exactly <laughs> so um so tell right. me this uh for for those of us who don't know as much about fresh try what was it about it that walmart you know liked so much and and that ha- worked out so well yeah
1: it started out as a research project and we basically went to the South, we went to Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, all of which have very high rates of uh, obesity. I and, thought you were going to say all and, of which have good uh, barbecue. Really, they, yeah, those are two things that maybe be related. I don't know. <laughs> um, I come from Oklahoma, so I can totally relate. Um, and and just talked with folks and observed what they did or didn't do around their health. And it's, it turned out that food and the concepts of food was the biggest target for what was naturally occurring between people. You know, for example, uh, the, the associates who ran the produce department of Walmart, somebody would come in and say, Hey, I, I just got, I just learned I have cancer. What's a good food for cancer? And you know, they're basically getting these sidebars almost like a doctor asking them to cure their cancer or their stomach ailment with ginger. And there's just a lot of just natural behaviors around food. And, and there was also a lot of unhealthy behaviors around food, you know, people just kind of toting around a big thing of sugary drink with them as they worked um, to try to keep up their energy, right? So there was a lot of opportunity there. And Walmart was very intrigued, hey, what can we do? And then what we did was we started interviewing people who had lost a ton of weight and kept it off for years. So they were kind of the success people, right? And we, and we interviewed them from all over. These were employees of Walmart all over the United States. And didn't matter when men, women, old, young, uh, manager or you know part-time associate, they all use the same mindset, which we are calling the iterative mindset. So these are people who dis- are distinguished in the way that they approach things by you know seeing everything as an experiment. You know I'm going to try this on like a, like a shirt at a store. You know and if it doesn't work for me, I'm going to iterate. I'm going to try on a different one or I'm going to try this out or once Maybe it works for me, but then I get inspired because now I feel confident. I want to go to the next level. What's next for me? So they just thought differently. That was the only thing that was different about them. They still had the same stressors, the same financial constraints, the same you know single parents, two jobs sometimes, like all these things, pressures, and they went against all odds. So what we thought was, okay, how can we scale that? How can we build something that would get people who don't think like that to be like that? and would they be successful? And so in Q2 of this year, we basically did a study on Fresh Try, which was kind of our software version one, um, and asked ourselves, can this help people do that? And we found actually at a p-value of less than 0.001, for those who know the statistics stuff, um, that we were able to get weight loss at about a pound of weight. We were able to uh, get habit formation using a validated instrument from science, and we were able to show uh mindset formation and positive psychometrics. So it the thesis of it is working out for us so far and we from that we built a version two that we just released.
0: Um, and for anybody who wants to look this up by the way, it's fresh try is uh, freshtri.com not t r y. correct. correct. Um, so for for folks um, who are listening to this and they're saying, yeah, but how does that work? Can you give an example? Can you break down why the <laughs> why the habit formation actually works when they do this?
1: Yeah. So let's go back to myelin, right? Um, if you look at the habit formation research and you look at brain scans, there are predictable inflection points or myelin formation points in the brain when somebody repeats a habit over and over again. I, I like to say mindlessness is the new mindfulness, meaning that if I can't get something that is a behavior change to be as mindless as tying your shoe, then it's gonna slip back because the second you get distracted or stressed out or pressured for time you're or tired, uh, you're gonna slip right back to your previous default. So if I'm trying to build something in your brain or I'm trying to help you build something in your brain that is going to compete with your default, then we have to make it the new default. And the science is very clear. There, there are There's an inflection point gate at about eight to 10 weeks Where the myelin starts to kick in, and you get something called automaticity that starts to happen. That just means that mindlessness, that automatic autopilot that the brain prefers, is starting to kick in. Uh, For those of you from behavioral psych or know Kahneman's work, it's system one in behavioral psych, um, those kinds of thinking. And then if you go longer and longer uh, out to a year, then you basically have a fully baked, fully grown habit at about a year that's fully myelinated and competitive with its precursor it's its default uh that came before it and so then you have two copies and what most people don't understand is once you have two copies of the same habit the good one quote unquote and the bad one quote unquote then it's just a matter of continuing to invest in the one that you want the good one that you want to happen and you will always have some breakthrough of the bad habit you'll always have what's called a relapse to the bad habit, and what's interesting to me is that there's this this study that's always done called the National Weight Loss Registry, and these are people, 10,000 people, that they survey every year, and they figure out what behaviors they're doing uh, that work. Well, a lot of what they do is very surface level, like something you eat breakfast. I'm not sure that there's causation with breakfast, but there's correlation, and it's also in the media. So a lot of it has to do with what people are familiar with or what they're about. But what's most interesting about this data is that the people who lose the most weight and keep it off long term are the people who have the shortest relapse periods, meaning they don't linger in that relapse. They just get back on their horse and they just reinvest in that new habit over and over again.
0: I love it. Um, this is maybe a good place for us to pause and, uh, and wind down uh, part one of the interview here. But for folks who who want to understand more of that, is there any researcher or is there any place that you would point to as far as um, that research that was done about the, the eight weeks and then the one year on some of that stuff? Is there anything that comes to mind? I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot if it's not right on the tip of your tongue. Don't feel bad
1: yeah it's not on the tip of my tongue uh we had our neuroscience team actually build this model based on lit reviews that we did that were exhaustive during okay. this project period yeah and and so we've got a whole bibliography internally on it um but I'm sure that if folks do their homework and they do their own lit review, they can figure out and and build the same conclusions
0: yeah well, in part two i wanna I want hear more about how you guys operationalized it at fresh try so um, as mm-hmm. far as people who want to follow you or connect with you, what, what are the best places?
1: Well, um, you know, freshtry.com is the product side of things. And of course, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and I guess that ports out to Twitter. So if they have any interest in what I'm putting out, that, that, also I have a YouTube channel called The Dr. Kyra Show, which is three minutes of uh, neuroscience and how to change behavior every week that I'm really into these days. And so. That's my fun
0: project. Okay, great. And then we didn't, just one last plug here, we didn't talk about your book at all. Can you talk about The Well-Designed Life?
1: Yeah, Well-Designed Life is kind of this in, endearing project. I put it out years, like in 2015 or 2016, excuse me, and it has a life of its own. I'm not myself a real book promoter person, but the darn thing just keeps selling. And, and the funniest <laughs> part is I was looking at the data. I, every now and then I look at the data, and we were doing taxes And I looked at the data of the sales for last year and there's like this whole constituency in Japan of all places (laughs) that have taken the book and just run with it. And there's thousands of copies going off in Japan. So um, I'm literally big in Japan. I don't even know why, (laughs) but, um, but I, I love it. I love it because it was, it was an offer. It was like a heart offering to the world. I wanted to make people better at understanding how the brain works and being more, uh, adept at driving the car instead of being driven by the car. And people who are designers, people who are behavior change person, you know, people, experts, change makers, they really love it. And it's just a really good synthesis of most important things you need to know about the brain.
0: I love it. And most important to me, it's available on audio. <laughs> Everybody go to audible.com. You, go. <laughs> you can listen to it on your commute. Yeah. Okay. Everybody, please yeah. please tune back in for part two. Um, we're going to be learning more about uh, what the great things they've been doing with all this knowledge is. Thanks so much.